0: Hey everybody, coach Jonathan here with a quick announcement before this podcast. We were actually starting a brand new podcast that will run in parallel to the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast. It's called the Successful Athletes Podcast. It's where we interview athletes that have done something particularly interesting, noteworthy, or achieved some sort of feat on the bike. That could be winning a race, or it could just be achieving a PR or doing something else that's extraordinary in some way. We're going to interview these people, dig into their preparation and how they executed on the big day or throughout that process, whatever it may be to learn how we can become faster cyclists and multi-sport athletes as a result. So stay tuned for that. You'll see more episodes coming up from this, this week, we've already recorded one, and we gave you that sample on the last episode here, but stay tuned. Uh, you'll have a new podcast to subscribe to, and we will have weekly episodes with athletes doing incredible things. So stay tuned for that. And for now, enjoy this podcast with Andy blow of precision hydration. It's an awesome one. Welcome to the podcast. It's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The Ask a Cycling Coach podcast, presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and we have a special episode today. We have Trainer Road and Cannondale's Amber Pierce. What's up, Amber? Hey, guys. And we also have just uh, one other guest with us today, and this is a returning guest for us on the podcast, backed by popular demand. Andy Blow from Precision Hydration. How you doing, Andy?
1: Good. Thanks, guys. Nice to be here
0: again. It looks like you're so you're in the UK right now, and that's, that's right. You look like you're in a training facility. I see textbooks and I see the spin bike. I see the whole thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, um, I lifted up a load of old towels the other day and found there was this, this thing underneath there that I used to train on. So it's <laughs> even, it's, it's even been, it's times have got so desperate recently. I've even dusted it off. I found some shoes, you know, with, um, with cleats and stuff. And I was back on it the other day doing some intervals. That's a good
0: transition here into introing you a little bit uh what's your background in sport and then we can get into your background in in, and i guess the educational background and then of course
1: where you're at with precision hydration as well but
0: let's start with sport The sure. so were cyclists triathlete what's the background
1: so um i did a bit of cycling but mainly for triathlon i was the triathlon was the sport that i took the most seriously and i was i was pretty heavily involved in the sport from my late teens into my late 20s basically probably yeah 10 years or so of, of going pretty hard at triathlon i spent a little bit of that that time full-time as an athlete like a moderately unsuccessful pro athlete you <laughs> might call it but you know i won, not i won a little bit of money but spent a lot more money doing it basically <laughs> um and yeah so i and that was where you know a lot of my interest in hydration came about as a personal level of interest but i also i studied sport and exercise science i went to the university of bath in in the uk which had a very and still has a very strong sport science program as well as a big triathlon community there so it was a a really a really cool place to be in the late 90s early 2000s
0: and what what brought you into founding precision hydration and going into that field
1: that that was all because you know i'm I sweat a lot I had a lot of hydration problems as an athlete in hot conditions partly because I wasn't used to them training in the UK although it's sunny out here today that's rare you know it's it's not this is not um it's not Southern California weather that we get normally it's um, it's a little bit uh, cooler and drizzly normally so I well, I would, I found that I got exposed to having big problems racing in the heat. So if I went to, one of the earliest things I did going into the heat was in the Middle East. I got invited to do a race in Saudi Arabia, actually. Wow. And that was, that we we did a training camp there that was really cool, but it was hard, you know, in that level of heat. Um, that was, I guess that's kind of, you know, where that would be like in the US, I suppose, like uh, Phoenix or somewhere like that. It's mm-hmm. that kind of intense, dry desert heat mm. and i found that a bit of a shock to the system but then <laughs> going to going to kona and going to well, the first time i raced in hawaii was actually in Xterra worlds in 2000 and that was that was an eye-opener for me you know the amount that i sweated and how how badly i suffered in the heat so all of this you know i had loads of problems cramping which i know we want to talk about and um, hypernatremia and stuff like that so i learned that hydration for for me as an individual was a massive piece to unlocking my best performances, and so that started a journey of you know okay working with athletes, helping them figure it out, and eventually to to forming the business precision hydration. Sweet. Yeah,
2: it's interesting this the athlete mindset of chasing excellence like that. It almost becomes like this self motivated kind of problem solving momentum right that you just when you run into an issue like that with hydration you just you want to know more and the curiosity of what you're experiencing kind of drives what you're learning and then the further you dig into what you're learning it starts driving more curiosity about what it is you're experiencing and as an athlete it's so cool
1: yeah it was in the early days of the internet when i was doing a lot of that that reading and you know i was (laughs) i was sort of plugging my dial-up modem into the wall i remember that and going (laughs) searching and the only place i could find useful information about extreme sweat loss and salt loss and all the kind of things that i thought i was suffering with was ultra running forums Mm -hmm. because back in the day you know before ultra running was super popular you would have all these little forums of people doing the western states 100 or people doing these these kind of ultra long events and they the kind of stories that they were telling and the the way in which they were problem solving on on those forums I got quite I didn't get involved in it as a participant as much as just an observer I was reading going back reading years and years of this stuff and then doing keyword searches and I've I've still got somewhere a list of all of these early websites that I read and actually I refer back to some of that stuff that's now getting on for 20 years old and it's still useful and relevant stuff but I spent literally you know hours immersed in in that years and years ago to try and 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 selfishly the 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 drive back then was purely like how do I get better? You know, that's yeah. That's i was interested in.
2: Was it, is there like a, a moment for you that kind of stands out either in your racing career or in some of what you were reading that felt like a really pivotal moment for you that sort of set this trajectory?
1: It was the, the sort of the two of the worst moments that, that made me really get frustrated about this with two big races. I raced the world championships, uh, the long distance world championships, which were in Nice in France in i can't even remember what year it was it would have been about 2003 or so something like that very hot uh, i i drank way too much water I had a horrific race nearly didn't finish ended up walking the run and wanted to wanted to give up because i'd i'd been in great shape to make the great britain team to actually go and do that and then just it was ridiculous how, how bad the race went. Yeah. Just, just so frustrating. And then the f- it was either that year or the following is most likely would have been the following year. I, I'd also fulfilled an ambition to qualify for Kona, went and did the Ironman and had a shocker there as well. And it was, they were, they were big drivers for me that I really thought, if I'm going to carry on doing this, I've got to sort this out because, mm-hmm. and, that, and whilst I was starting to learn at that point, I didn't have enough, practical knowledge or practical experience to apply stuff robustly so the following the thing that really tipped it for me was talking to a friend of mine who was a doctor uh, he's a heart surgeon a guy called um, dr raj jutley who's actually a co-founder of precision hydration and he he sort of looked at it very because raj is interested in sport, but he's not a massive sportsman himself. So he didn't come at this from the emotional, emotionally charged angle mm. that I did. He looked at it from a physiological angle and said, "Andy, it looks like to me you're losing lots and lots of fluid, lots and lots of salt, and we need to, like, we need to quantify that. We need to look at it, and we need to put a plan in place." And he said, "Have you, you know, taken electrolytes?" And I'm like, "Well, yes, I do." And that, but then when we reverse engineered what I was doing it was the equivalent of you know taking probably 10 percent of what he felt that i needed and i needed that at that point i needed that encouragement to actually even though i studied sports science and i was very motivated my the way in which i'd approached problem solving was not particularly structured or scientific it was very you know like i would try things and then walk away from them if they didn't immediately work, as you do as like a frustrated <laughs> young sure. athlete. And I and I see yeah. it all the time with athletes that come to us now. They're like, I've tried this, I've tried that, and, and they've tried 50 different things. But, you know, you've not tried something quite often until you've tried it persistently and mm-hmm. in an organized way. You don't have to be a complete scientist, but but what can what you do need to do is you do you sort of need to if you're going to change a variable you need to control the other variables and then change that one variable and then you also need to understand what the magnitude of change is to be to be effective you know, right. if you talk about it if you're if you're changing your bike setup you know and I'm not an expert in that area but you might, you might look at someone who, as, as someone who is an expert in that area, look at that and go, well, this person looks like they're, saddle- they're riding their saddle too low. So you go, okay, well, we need to raise your saddle up. But if that person doesn't know whether you need to raise the saddle up by a millimetre or 12 millimetres, you're like, what's a, what's a appreciable magnitude of change there? And so that's when I started to get interested in looking at what those numbers were, and actually going, okay, well, if I'm going to change my hydration plan, what's a small amount of water to drink? What's a large amount, actually? What's a small amount of electrolyte or sodium to take? What's a large amount look like? And and before you know those things, you are totally hitting and hoping, basically. This is what I was doing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. And it's so cool that you had a friend who could kind of ground you with that and, you know, provide not only some guidance, but accountability and support because these trial and error processes that we go through. I mean, and it is a, is very trying in terms of patience. And as we all know, athletes are, we'll say there's a sense of urgency yeah. <laughs> to, get, oh, yeah. to get to where you want to be. Oh, you
1: know, cause you need it solved net by next week, don't you, yeah. you know, it's, it's not, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just so, want to yeah. get fit
2: tomorrow. Yeah, like, can, we, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can we, can yeah. we make that happen?
0: Yeah. <laughs> so with, along with all of this, uh, you, you've found a precision hydration. And, uh, if you actually look on the trainer road forum, or if you just Google, probably the easiest way to do it would be to look up, uh, ask a cycling coach podcast, precision hydration. You'll be able to listen to a previous episode we did with Andy when he was actually in studio in Reno. Uh, we're going to cover some of the basics that we covered in that one, just a, just a handful of them to kind of provide some context for everybody that's listening to this. So then we can further understand a few other topics. Uh, Namely, we're going to be talking about indoor versus outdoor training. And if the hydration needs change at all, we'll also be going into cramping and discussing that, discussing what we know, what we don't know, how hydration can influence that. And then we'll also be discussing women's specific hydration needs, uh, how it relates to the menstrual cycle, plenty of different stuff. So. Those are the main topics that we'll go through here and hopefully that can give you a, a good guideline to, to listen to those topics as we roll through uh first thing i want to talk about andy is it seems like the the so sweat itself is something that's that's commonly misunderstood a very common question that we get is i get salt stains like crazy does that mean that i need to drink more uh does does that mean that i'm inefficient in some way there's that and they have lots of questions about that can you first address kind of the two main things which are basically, as I understand it at least, sweat rate and sweat composition and how that really affects yep. your performance.
1: Yeah, you're right. Those two things are really important. They're, they're sort of our independent variables. So if we address sweat rate to start with, sweat rate refers obviously to how fast you sweat, how much you sweat. And we we usually talk about it in terms of, I'm more comfortable, being where I'm from in litres, you know, metric into kind of litres per hour, but you would usually express it as a, an amount of fluid volume lost over a period of time. So if we do just talk in litres per hour for a moment, we can probably convert some of it on the fly. You know, sweat rates can vary a lot between people and a lot within a single person. Now, if we take the differences between people to start with, some people just because of their body size or because of the way they're the the density of sweat glands they have or the 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 capacity of their body to sweat might be um, lower than other people so on the extreme ends what i've seen is when we've when we've pushed some athletes really really hard in hot conditions sometimes we can only elicit if they've got a low sweat rate we might be able to elicit a maximal sweat rate somewhere between like 500 and 700 millilitres per hour. So about just over half a litre per hour. And that might be a, a small athlete, you know, and someone who doesn't sweat a lot. We had a, a lady who is a triathlete in um, somewhere in, uh, it was either Tennessee or somewhere like that, somewhere hot and humid. And her biggest problem in in races was overheating because she didn't sweat very much. And when we measured, or she said she didn't sweat very much. So when we measured her sweat rate, it was in fact really quite low. And she had to work out, well, she had to work on bottles of water over the head and that kind of thing to kind of improve cooling in hot conditions. On the other end of the spectrum i've worked with nba players who are some of the heaviest sweaters that we that we work with because they're very very big guys six foot eight six foot nine whatever inches tall very high work rates quite hot and humid often in a, a basketball practice facility and we've routinely seen people with two two and a half liter i've even heard reported three liters an hour sweat rates so oh my gosh so there's one guy who played i don't know if he still plays for the Knicks, but I did a, I've watched the training session there and they basically have a guy who follows him around with a mop, you know, because, <laughs> because they're worried about the other players s- slipping up on the practice floor because right. there's so much sweat.
2: Yeah. That's like um, a safety hazard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That.
0: That, so I want to put some context on that really quick for most people, if you're watching on YouTube right now, um, if you're not, then you can imagine, but so this bottle right here, this is just a normal, like cycling bottle. And this is like 550 milliliters, I think is what a normal bottle is. is that about yeah, right? I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so
1: about 600, I think 16 ounces is not far off half a liter. So 32 mm-hmm. ounces would be a roughly a liter.
0: So when you think about that, you know, a, a relatively, a very low sweat rate would be one of these an hour in yeah. an active state. And then with that NBA player my goodness you're talking six of these an hour possibly yeah that's just
2: crazy to think. that's an amazing range
0: it is
1: yeah but what that's talking about as well to be clear is like that's people's maximal sweat rate Mm -hmm. so a low it's low 500 mils an hour is a low maximal sweat rate but when we actually get athletes in the real world if you go out on a ride on a cold day and it's a fairly easy spin and you're not massively overdressed your sweat rate could be pretty close to zero so the actual range of sweating that goes on with athletes is sort of even wider because you've got that range from zero through you know two three liters plus and we've occasionally seen you know even as a, i'm i'm not a huge guy i'm like um or i be in pounds about 150 pounds something mm-hmm. like that about five five foot nine so probably a similar size to a lot of, you know, like middle of the pack cyclists basically. Mm-hmm. And but my sweat rate can exceed two litres an hour. But that is high for someone of my size. They often what's quoted as kind of a typical adult sweat rate for someone who's working hard, if there is such a thing, is like one to one point two litres an hour. You know, something like 32 mm-hmm. 36 ounces. If you and that's if you're working hard in fairly warm conditions Mm -hmm. so we always say and and on the really extreme end although I've not measured these numbers personally I have seen numbers in the literature reported at four or five liters an hour for some like really high sweat rates but I think you're talking about and we've worked with some NFL linebackers and people like that but I think you're talking about guys that are built like that lots of clothing lots of heat I think Mm -hmm. if you if if we're you know pulling it back to cycling Mm Low sweat rate is going to be if you're working reasonably hard you know three four hundred milliliters an hour if you if if it's high you might you might lose a couple of liters an hour that's probably the sort of magnitude that would that would capture ninety five percent of people that we're talking to
0: so one of the things that you do is uh, so and we took this last time a sweat test and yeah. that sweat test was taken in an inactive state. How does that information then scale out? to an athlete to inform them for example like if they're doing like a recovery ride versus some really hard ride how does that yeah. sweat test data that you get cuz i can't remember i think i was on the if there's if there's a mid range i was slightly toward the top of the mid range yeah uh, so now how was, does that relate
1: well that was the sweat composition test so that doesn't look so much at sweat rate it gives an indirect measurement of sweat rate but what we measured there was the sodium content of your sweat. So sodium is the main electrolyte that you lose in your sweat because it's the main electrolyte in your blood plasma, which mm. is where sweat comes from. And different, people, different people's sweat glands respond differently and, and reabsorb more sodium before sweat comes out to the surface of the skin. So as I mentioned earlier, I have very salty sweat. So I lose about 1.8 grams of sodium in every liter when we measure it through that methodology. Some people, the average is about 900. We sometimes measure people who have very dilute sweat. And whilst that there's, there is sort of scientific argument and, uh, around the fact that that number can fluctuate for an individual, what, what our testing and, and research has shown us is, is that that number is relatively stable within an individual. So me as someone who loses a high amount of salt in my sweat, although on a cold day I won't sweat very much because my sweat rate is driven largely by my metabolic rate, my sweat composition seems to be quite salty the whole time and the theory is actually that any time your sweat rate goes up your sweat composition is likely to become saltier because your sweat glands are less able to reabsorb the sodium in a short space of time mm-hmm. so so this what, what we tend to do in order to start to ballpark the figures on what people are losing is get an objective measure of their sweat rate which is done you know ideally on a on a bike or in a situation that where you can exercise and you can weigh yourself before and after some sessions at certain intensities the weight difference that you lose is largely what you've lost in sweat and then if we also take the sweat composition figure so for me 1.8 grams if it's, you know, it's keeping the math simple, if I'm losing one liter an hour and roughly 1.8 grams of sodium in that, then I know what my net losses might be over a three or four hour, five hour ride at that intensity.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And although that's that sounds like quite a precise measurement, what it actually is is a, just a a good ballparking estimate, which you can then work backwards from,
3: mm-hmm. and
1: and you kind of get into that what we we're talking about earlier that that annoying iterative organized trial and error process <laughs> that you need to go through to, to figure it out. And, and that's, you know, so what I did as an athlete, when I started to figure out these numbers was the, the athletes initial reaction is go, if I'm losing this, then I need to replace this one for mm-hmm. one, you know, one in one out. And that obviously makes logical sense, but, but doesn't always make sense in an exercising context because when we start exercising it's the same with carbohydrate you know you start exercising with your body hopefully fairly topped up on carbohydrate with topped up with fluid topped up with salts you know you've got stores and we all know this because you can go and exercise pretty hard for quite a prolonged period of time before the wheels come off <laughs> because of, mm-hmm. because this because of what you've got stored so you can sweat quite a bit you can burn quite a lot of energy and and i guess for most people if you're well trained that could be 90 minutes or maybe even a bit longer before you really start to see a noticeable difference in performance if you consume nothing
3: mm-hmm.
1: so what we need to then go is okay well how much do we need to replace to maintain performance and that's where the that's where it all gets tricky because there's it's all about well it depends if X or Y, and it depends how long you're going for, it depends what the weather conditions are like, it depends whether this is a time trial or a road race or a mountain bike race. You know, there's all kind of things that come into it. But at least by starting to understand the magnitude of what your losses are and being able to constrain the ballpark in which you, you do the trial and error, you've got something to base it on
2: yeah it gives you a real leg up and kind of a head start on this in terms of that the the other thing as well is
1: it it kind of gives you some 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 case study stuff you can be doing so that's how i Mm -hmm. started out as well was trying to figure out okay well who am i like i've read about this guy does he sound like i'm like him because if this guy online is going well i sweat a ton and i'm always getting cramps and i've got like salt crust in my eyes and i'm like i can relate to that
3: Mm -hmm. so
1: that's that's maybe that's a model that I can whatever he's doing if he's saying I take x y or z amount per hour and it works for me then that seems like a sensible place to start I think where it goes wrong with copying other people is what we instinctively do as athletes is we copy people who are not like us but who we aspire to be like so very successful people yeah and they may not ironically they may be successful because they have different characteristics to us inherently, so kind of copying someone. Sometimes you learn a lot by copying people who are very good at things, but when it's reliant on you having similar physiology, I think that's that's troubling. Yeah. You know, I, I guess it's the same. I mean, Jonathan, you can probably, or Amber, you can both probably talk about the fact how it is with training. You know, because mm-hmm. people copy the wrong sorts of training. Oh yeah,
2: yeah. No, I, I'm just laughing. I'm giggling in my head because I'm just thinking. I, I certainly there's certain. You know, you look at athletes that you think are just amazing, or you really respect or admire for many reasons, and then you're just like, wow, that you know, there's so many things about them that are like wildly different from who I am. So you're better off looking for your sweat doppelganger than, yeah. <laughs> than looking for <laughs> yeah. your, necessarily your favorite athlete. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And that's that's one of the things that we like to do now. Is we one of the thing the things that myself and the team at PH have built up is this kind of mental. Database of case studies of like, well, we've kind of someone talks to us or emails us about what's going on with them, and you're like, oh, well, I remember when we talked about someone else who was having similar problems yeah. or was similar like that. Then this is what we did, and we, you know, so whether that is that's maybe not truly scientific, but it's it's often a valid way I think to to go about helping people problem solve.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah,
0: I'm sure you experience. I mean, you've. Uh, so, and, and Amber with her career as a professional road racer for years, and you also, Amber being, being a fellow nerd, like the rest of us. And, and also <laughs> a person that likes to dig into research stuff. I'm sure that was part of your process. Did you ever have, uh, challenges with sweat loss or, or, or sodium loss or sweat rate, I should say, like, and in, in how did you go through that? I really
2: career? struggled in the heat and I. I never got to the point of actually doing a sweat test. I wish that this is something that I had been aware of yeah. <laughs> much <laughs> earlier on. Um, but I definitely, I mean, I'm a bigger writer. I'm ten. I was racing around 150 pounds and um, at, I'm, you know, for what we kind of look at as the cycling stereotype, which I don't know, there's a lot to be said around that, but like, I was one of the bigger riders in the Peloton. I'm yeah. taller than a lot of people. And, and so just from like a, thermodynamics perspective i have some thermal mass you know yeah. <laughs> so um it made sense to me that i struggled in the heat and i definitely mm-hmm. noticed a difference if i were training in the heat and acclimating to the heat um i would perform better in races and i'm certainly one of those people that has salt caked on my jersey and um i really you know one of the things i was always good about was listening to my salt cravings <laughs> yeah
1: yeah well that's that's a really good really good point because really good elite athletes often get very in tune with their body and you know listening to your salt cravings and listening to your thirst instincts and all those kind of things aren't necessarily the be-all and end-all of where your nutrition hydration strategy should start and finish but they're really important because we always try to design a, a, a like a strategy for someone that takes into account the scientific measurements that we make but at the same point when you get three four five hours deep into an event and you you've been there before you know your body and you're you're listening to what it's telling you we would always encourage athletes to kind of override the plan at that point and, and go with what feels right because you might not always get it right but you'll certainly learn yeah there's a, definitely there's, a, there's an interesting because i um, i wouldn't say that i aggressively so but occasionally lock horns with academics or people question what we do because it's not um, it's not true, you know. It's not truly academic. We're not churning out. We've published some papers, and we've, but we're not. We're not just in a lab or doing scientific studies the whole time. We we try to be scientific, but we also try to have an element of of you know, skin in the game. You know, with being in the real world with real outcomes. And I, I read a really really interesting book at the moment. I've nearly finished called, called Skin in the Game and the guy who who wrote it i'm trying to remember the quote that he said because it applies to this so well but it's something like you know in academia there's no difference between academia and the real world but in the real world there is (laughs) yeah it's like
2: where the rubber meets the road (laughs) yeah
1: exactly i mean that's we you, you want to talk about cramping and that kind of thing and that's one of those classic examples for me where there's so much debate about cramping because so mechanistically no one understands fully why cramps happen but we know it's to do with or implicated in it are you know fatigue neural problems possibly dehydration sodium depletion or overhydration and hypernatremia because we know that because there's so many cases in different walks of life where when those problems happen you know muscle cramps start to occur but mechanistically we don't exactly understand why so all these theories pop up and some of them are academically driven and they tend to be the more recent ones which are you know neural predominantly neural theories you know that the muscles are misfiring they're they're fatigued and and so on and so forth which i can buy that you know i think that there's there's a huge element of that i went bike riding outdoors the other day for the first time in ages and got a bit of twinge of cramp of one of the clients but i was like 30 minutes into a ride i was on a gravel bike on a really steep thing i've not ridden hard for years you know and Mm -hmm. i it was a sign to me like come on andy you just you know you have you, you don't know what 500 watts is anymore you're yeah. not, you know, you know, you're more of a 200 watt guy now you know <laughs> is, so so i kind of took that as a warning you know all right that's a cramp or that's a twinge from like overdoing it the cramp that i used to get seven hours into an iron man when, when my body's locking up and shutting down that 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 was remedied by me taking a load of salt in seems very very sort of intrinsically linked to sodium depletion, which as we know, you know, sodium potassium pump is involved in nerve transmission, it's involved in muscular contraction. So although we maybe don't have a a really thorough, thoroughly researched and proven academic theory that locks those two together, there's a reason why things that as this guy says in his book you know things that have skin in the game last for a long time like athletes have been taking salt and sodium for Mm -hmm. years Mm -hmm. and other fads have come and gone you know i remember in my lifetime you you guys might remember them as well the the nose strips that everyone was wearing for a while that open your nose you know and that was supposed to give you like this extra edge you know but but everyone was a bit unclear at the time whether they worked or they didn't but a few prominent athletes particularly in distance running were using them so you'd see them everywhere yeah and then gradually over the years you know they kind of fall out of favor and they fall out of use and my view on that is always look well Maybe someone wrote a paper that said, you know, we've measured the airflow and it does X, Y, and Z. But you take it out into the real world, give it to a load of athletes. And athletes, if you—if athletes could take a sticky pasta and stick it on their nose and it would make them faster. They'd do it. <laughs> They'd they do it. You know, because because the, the crowdsourcing of that, amount of that amount of trial and error, those things tend to persist if they mm-hmm. really, really work. If they offer a measurable edge, everyone starts doing it and they yeah. start yeah. using them. like It's like the ultimate
2: them, validation. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I, for me, it's it's not strong science, but it's strong life facts that, you know, if people are still taking sodium and, and you know, with their hydration, even though, for cr- to solve cramping, even though it's not proven, it's kind of, if it's passing the test of being proven in the real world, to a to a degree that's good enough now it doesn't mean we should stop investigating and stop trying to find out because am i convinced that some people like you know take it who don't need it or take too much and that sort of thing? it's like yes definitely you know that because With an athlete, if you tell them that taking something will help, you know they'll usually take five times the amount. (laughs) We talk. talk More has to be better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, everything is. Everything is more. We 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 have a problem with that, you know, with our product line because we have the different strengths of products, and in some Mm -hmm. situations, you know, people just like, oh, I just have the strongest one. Yeah, yeah. Head in your hands and go like. But if that was the case you know why would we make different strengths you know sure yeah yeah. this
2: is such a good point i mean in academia the you can be really really precise in a lab and you can control for a lot of factors and you can really drill down on the underlying mechanisms of what's going on but when you get into the real world there's just so much that's beyond your control i mean forget about controlling factors anymore and Ultimately, to your point, even when we don't understand the mechanism, if it works, it works, and athletes are not going to worry too much yeah. <laughs> about mechanistic theory. Like they're just going to say, "Like, hey, I don't know why, but it works for me, so this is the thing I'm going to do." And then, you know, conversely, like you can take it, th- um, you have whatever it is that you're going to be applying in the real world has to be robust enough to handle the chaos that's ultimately going to get thrown at it, right? Because yeah. on race day things are gonna happen that are beyond your control. And it's it's when those applications are gonna be robust enough to persist, to your point, I think is that's that's the whole, it's such a, such a key difference between what we see in the labs and the research and the literature, and then what we actually see happening kind of in the real world on race day for, for real athletes.
0: Yeah. A, a crucial thing to remember is that many times studies are pointing out levers. Those mm-hmm. levers are pulled or adjusted in a, in a larger process. However, it does not mean that that lever is the indicative or dominant one. And or that it's, it's been, not
2: influenced by other levers.
0: Yes. And it's so tempting <laughs> for us to just grab one thing and go for it. And cramping is such a great example of that. Um, one thing that I want to come, uh, touch on here. So we touched on the fact that there's sweat rate and that varies dependent on the activity and the athlete themselves. We, um, also, and, and one quick question on that actually yep. is if you train at, is there a way to make yourself sweat more or sweat less you mentioned an athlete that mm-hmm. she didn't sweat very much uh, so she was aiding the evaporative cooling process by putting water on her skin that sort of yeah. stuff but is there a way to increase your sweat rate not composition but but sweat rate or even decrease it potentially
1: yeah um there is a way to increase it um it's the to the heat basically so when you exercise for prolonged periods in the heat, one of the adaptive responses that the body takes is it boosts blood plasma volume so that you've got more blood for sweating as well as more blood to distribute around the body for cooling. Um, and that happens you know, in, in a few days, actually, through, through training in a hotter environment than what you're accustomed to. So the only time that becomes a problem is obviously if you are living somewhere hot and training repeatedly in the heat then you may have already reached that ceiling. Okay. It's a really, really good tactic for athletes who are going to go to the heat if they live somewhere cool is a few days of aggressive heat training in the in the immediate buildup because that sweat rate adaptation is, is huge and really, really important because the more you sweat, the more you can evaporate, the quicker you can cool.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And core body temperature increase is obviously a big limiter. So right. but but that's probably the only way in terms of decreasing sweat rate not not really other than all of the classic kind of marginal gain things like looking at the ventilation of your helmet and the the clothing that you're wearing and obviously adjusting your work rate and stuff but in in real terms you know if you've got if you've got to perform at a certain output wearing certain gear and all this then your sweat rate is dictated largely by your metabolic rate so there's not really a way to down regulate it
0: what about sweat composition is there a way to influence that on an individual level for a single person
1: so there are theories around the fact that when they've done studies very extreme studies of salt depletion with people they've seen that eventually salt in sweat decreases as well and possibly as well although this is less this is more controversial less well proven if you eat a really excessive amount of salt then there's potential for more of it to show up in your sweat because when the body's got a very, very low amount of something, it's going to do what it can to conserve it. And when it's got a massive excess, it will do whatever it can to excrete it. Now, largely, most if you eat more salt or eat less salt, then you, you measure someone's urine output, and they'll either pee less salt or they'll pee more salt, because that's the primary way in which sodium's controlled. Sweat might, may be a secondary mechanism for controlling that. But I think the problem with those approaches for athletes is it's largely unhealthy to eat vastly more salt than you need, and it's also probably detrimental to performance to undersalt significantly because it, it has an effect on your extracellular fluid volume and your your hydration status. It can have influence on your energy levels and that kind of thing. You know, people on very very low salt diets often don't perform particularly well until they reintroduce. So
0: let's discuss that really quick of timing and loading for yeah. uh, events and that sort of thing. I know uh, Amber. Uh, this is harking back to my early days. I don't know if you have an embarrassing story like this, but I had no clue and didn't understand anything. I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but my first 100 mile ride was a huge day in the mountains. It was like a 15,000 foot climbing day. And I was like, all right. So I just drink Gatorade like crazy for like three days beforehand. And I basically just <laughs> lived in the bathroom um, for yeah. the three days prior to it. Cause I was drinking so much Gatorade and. Uh, that 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 day went terribly for many other reasons, I'm sure, but uh what is a better strategy than that for loading because sodium loading is a thing, and yeah. it is effective right
1: It can be um, although I think i even though we recommend it, we would place it in the category of one of those kind of smaller more marginal gains um, unless you're so well to qualify that statement, if you go into an event a bit dehydrated then you're on the back foot and that's a bad thing and therefore prehydration is is not to be underestimated it's important the, the the difficulty is you can't if you're living a pretty normal lifestyle hydrating reasonably diligently and not not becoming significantly dehydrated before an event and I wouldn't imagine a lot of athletes are um, or mean research maybe shows otherwise in some cases but generally if you're drinking normally you're matching your losses, you know, over the course of a the day, then you don't you don't get a huge benefit from drinking loads more in the build up to the event because you can't store that water. So you basically flush it through your system and you, you pee it out. And if you do that to a really aggressive degree, and I've done exactly what you described there before, you know, before hot races or whatever, I would be drinking, drinking, drinking because you've got that horrible combination as an athlete of being really performance driven. You've got time on your hands. Normally the days before an event you're getting nervous and you're thinking, well, I bet. What if I've not quite drunk enough? I will just have a bit more, you know, just, you yep, just keep sinking away. Keep- more <laughs> is better. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then you just in it out. And if you do that to, it, to extremes, you can actually beca- start to become mildly hypernatremic or certainly like lower the sodium levels in your body a little bit because you inevitably pee a little bit of sodium out as well. So what we'd normally say to athletes for prehydration is look, drink normally, behave normally in the days before the event. If you're traveling a lot to get to an event or if you're going somewhere hot or spending a lot of time on your feet or whatever big event expo, if it's a huge event the day before, you know, maybe an extra glass or bottle or two of water or something is sensible in the 48 hours before per day. On top of that, though, I'd encourage people to take a little bit of salt on their food if they don't normally, just to make sure they're not becoming deficient in that. And then in the very final throws, and this is especially important on the morning of the event, is have around about 12 to 18 ounces of a very strong electrolyte drink. So in our terms, that means more than 1500 milligrams of sodium per litre. So in a 16 ounce serving, 750 milligrams of sodium and have that about 45 minutes to an hour before the start because what you can get then is if you, you can get some of that so, um, sodium drawn into the bloodstream fluid drawn in with it expands your blood volume and you you do kind of top off your tanks a little bit mm. but it's and it and it's a thing but it's a it's a relatively minor thing I think if you didn't do that, if you just followed great hydration practices, normal hydration practices, a little bit of extra water, a little bit of extra salt the days before, your performance isn't going to kind of tip on whether you do a preload or not. I think it's good practice because it's a belt and braces approach, but I don't want to oversell it as kind of the answer. I think for people like myself who have got big sweat rates and are big crampers, and if you get in the heat, it's maybe more important, but for the everyday person, it's, it's not a, a total game changer, basically.
2: Yeah, when we say more is better, we are totally joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really I think the take home point here is moderation is key. Yeah. <laughs> but so, th- so, what you're saying is the theory behind this is like you reach as, as almost like a saturation point of hydration where your body has reached the homeostasis. It's happy with its hydration status. So, anything beyond that is just going to be going through you. But then, if you bring in a little extra salt, that salt will change sort of the diffusion gradient and allow more water to get pulled into your system. And, and that, when you talk about that, you're talking about the blood plasma, right?
1: Blood plasma, that's where it's important, yeah. So you pull, that salt moves in from the gut into the bloodstream, pulls fluid mm-hmm. with it and holds it there because you maintain the levels of, of sodium in the blood uh, mm-hmm. a little bit more easily. And the other thing that, that, where you get kind of extra hydration in the last couple of days before the event is actually if you tapering down your training volume, keeping your carbohydrate intake up and sucking up your glycogen stores, you end up storing water with that as well. Mm -hmm. So although that is is not, uh, I don't know how fully sort of proven or otherwise it is, but the theory is that with that water, that water that's um, combined with the glycogen molecules is unlocked as that glycogen gets utilised. So it becomes metabolically available potentially. Mm -hmm. So effectively it's released and then, you know, you've got like a bit of an extra tank there. Because as we know the body's like incredible when it comes to self-regulation and if it can find ways to to cope under stress it will and that's probably one of them
2: Mm. yeah bodies uh, are so smart
1: yeah
0: it's fascinating (laughs) right it's amazing Uh, it's one of the things that so does a standard and i say standard american diet but Hopefully, like you know, those that are listening to this, a, a typical diet. Do you get enough sodium? Would you say for for an endurance athlete, or do you see endurance athletes typically not getting enough sodium? Is there any sort of recommendation on level that they should be taking in on just
1: a daily intake? I think we we see all we see it from all sides. So. There are, there's a, definitely a cohort of athletes that over consume sodium either as part of their general diet if there's a lot of processed food if they add a lot of salt to food if they if they do use a lot of sports nutrition that kind of thing it's it is incredibly easy to, to over salt um, and that's that's a problem you know if it's done for long long periods of time um, it can be you know it, the, the health ben- the health implications of that I think are maybe less, proven than was once thought you know there's a really interesting book called the salt fix which came out a few years ago which was by a doctor who took the the opposing view to the low sodium diet and actually advocates for a slightly higher sodium diet so there's there's kind of arguments in both camps there um, we also though we do see athletes who eat very diligent non-processed food you know very healthy diets and maybe because they follow the the traditional health advice which is to eat low sodium when you can they can fall short not necessarily fall short of what the whatever the fda daily recommendations are but fall short compared with what they're losing in their sweat because if that person you know if i eat low salt and let's say that for me equates to 3000 milligrams a day well realistically that's only two hours or so of intense activity and I've completely rinsed out that daily intake of sodium, uh, not notwithstanding any other losses that would that would go on as part of my general fluid turnover and losses within a day. So there's, there's often a case for increasing salt with those kind of people. There's a really interesting paper called The Importance of Salt in the Athlete's Diet that advocates for the fact that actually sodium recommendations for the, the general inactive public are probably not. Great for endurance athletes or athletes, yeah. or any athletes who are training hard. And I can share a link to that paper with you. For, yeah, to, that'd be to, great for the podcast because I think that that's an interesting read because it talks a lot about the nuance of that topic. Yeah, we that's can share that interesting.
0: if you go to the Trainer Road forum uh, and look for, mm-hmm. for yeah. this episode here with pretty you if you just search precision hydration, we'll put that link in there. Sorry, Amber, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I think I just think this is such a good point to just pause on for a moment because I think that when we talk about anything to do with endurance performance, endurance sports, a lot of what applies to um, increasing performance among athletes who are maintaining a high level of training and a high volume of of high intensity racing, for example, what we recommend for athletes is very, very different than what we would recommend for people who are living a more sedentary lifestyle. And this was a comment that I got a lot throughout my career would be, you know, we'd be out to dinner with the team or we'd be at a host family house, for example. And I was very liberal in terms of salting my food. Yeah. <laughs> and again, like, I mean, I was salting to taste, but like, I really felt that I I, I needed it because I, you know, I'm sweating a lot. And again, like mm. I have pretty salty sweat um, and people will kind of look at me just like, what are you doing i thought you were an athlete and you were supposed yeah. to eat healthy why would you be putting so much salt on your food and it was such a misconception i found and and there is so much conflicting messaging around this i'm just i'm curious um yeah what the the distinction there like you said what we would recommend for athletes is so different than what we might you know the same same goes for carbohydrate and simple sugar intake yeah. i think you oh, know? Like, yeah for, yeah exactly
1: <laughs> i was gonna i was gonna raise the same point because when yeah. i was training really really hard then I would happily, you know, do you have Harrybo sweets in the US? Oh I yes, yes I did. yeah. So, yeah. So, oh, I would, so I would, I would like occasionally just get to that point, you know, on a training camp especially where it would, it would be absolutely no, tr- no problem to sit and open one of those and eat the lot and feel. Yeah. The- Totally, you know, but if I did that now, I would feel awful. You know, not just psychologically, but like I'd physically feel awful because it would kind of overwhelm my body. But you know, when you're when your body is when you are smashing out the 20, 25 hour training weeks and your metabolism is like a furnace and that kind of thing. I'm not I'm definitely not advocating for the fact that that is like a healthy way to do it, a healthy choice. But just based on how you feel, you know, you can kind of get away with that sort of behaviour. Mm-hmm. where yeah you're, you're burning on, so much
2: and you need yeah. such a high level of carbohydrate that that's and,
1: and this need. lead this kind of leads to a really interesting point which is you know there is there is a lot of over complication goes on because <laughs> what we what we're often arguing against or for in these circumstances is uh you know a one-size-fits-all recommendation because people want to know is it is low salt good or is high salt good yeah is it that? and my <laughs> argument has always been you know since looking into this motorcycle it's it's very individual because mm-hmm. what's low salt for me might be relatively normal or high salt for someone else but it, it is a, if you step back or if you take the really high-level view it's as simple as, you know, within a period of time, you kind of have to meet your needs, you have to meet your losses. Now, if my losses are five or eight times higher than the guy next to me, then my intake needs to be of that similar sort of magnitude higher within a span of time. Now, whether that's nutrition I am taking on the bike or whether it's salt that I put on my food or whatever, I kind of, if my salt turnover is five times his, at some point I need to replace significantly more. And, and that's, that's what we end up kind of boiling this down to it's like everyone's a bit of an individual we need to understand what the magnitude of the ranges are and then help people play around in that area because as you as you discovered as an elite athlete and i i, I definitely from working with enough elite athletes now have recognized this pretty strong pattern that a lot of them are you get all level all levels of intellect and sophistication should we say you know across them like some people are very very into the books and the science and the research and get into the detail and some have zero interest in in that but but both groups are confident often enough to rely on their own intuition to a lot so maybe people who like to read the science need some of that to validate what they're doing but a lot of athletes Mm -hmm. just kind of they don't overthink it they go with what works they put their yeah. time and energy and their thinking time into into the stuff that really ma- matters for them and yeah. and this this point yeah you know, we can and we do we argue about these kind of minutiae details and trying to figure figure tiny things out so often that we we get away from the fact that actually if you i'm I'm actually writing an article for for our website about it at the moment because i get asked a lot it's like when you boil it down when you're ex during the period when you're exercising you kind of need you know you need carbs or fuel you need fluid and you need salt or you might need salt you don't always need it but you need those things for prolonged exercise and then if you figure those three things out those three levels out Mm -hmm. then The rest of the stuff that you kind of take in or whatever is all noise because if you get those three things right, then you perform pretty well. Mm -hmm. Now they don't they don't encompass like the wider aspects of what is what represents good nutrition for your life and all those sort of things. It's a well simplified version, but if you want to get down to the basics, if you don't know as an athlete, and I didn't know this when I was a younger athlete, like how many grams of carbs works for you per hour, how many Fluid ounces of fluid, roughly, works for you in different conditions. And whether you need a small, medium, or large amount of salt, then you're missing the three biggest tricks in the book to go faster over, mm-hmm. over long endurance, aren't you? That mm-hmm. probably That's in pace and pace point. judgment. If you get if you screw your pace judgment, all of those go out the window as well because it kind of doesn't matter. But if you pace it right, drink it drink enough, eat enough, and I get enough salt, you can keep going all day.
0: One hundred percent. That was lead I well love for that. me. So, and it was, and I, I basically, I had the the pills that the precision hydration, in fact, I, I'm not sure if you guys, were, was that like a pre-production thing? I, don't, I hope I'm not saying something that like you guys don't make <laughs> or something, but.
1: No, um, <laughs> capsules, was it the capsules that we do? The sweat, like sweat? Capsules. capsules. Yep. Yeah. yep. Yeah. In a little blister pack.
0: Yep, in the blister pack. So I just made sure that at each aid station, I took one of those uh, because I didn't have a particularly high amount of sweat, especially yeah. that day, uh, because yeah. it was pretty cool. Even though it's tricky at high elevation, cause it's so dry and you know, there's yeah. like that constant breeze that makes it seem like you're not sweating that much, but you probably are, but those three things. And then it, you, I mean, not that you can go on forever and discomfort certainly arises, don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. you do more or less feel that you can reach a steady state and long activities can be prolonged when you nail those three things of carbs per hour, sodium per hour, fluid per hour. And if you just make sure yeah. you don't you know mess things up with pacing then more or less you're okay oh, yeah. You know, what were, yeah go ahead andy sorry
1: so i was just going to say to, to speaking to amber's experience there with road racing because quite often that's that seems to me i've never i've done a couple of multi-day events but nothing nothing much to speak of it seems to me that when i talk to pro cyclists they they get really good at managing those three things, not only over the course of a day, but over the course of a week, or even a, you know, like three weeks of a grand tour. Yeah. So, and I presume a lot of that is ex- hard-won experience.
2: Experience and context, yeah. So, I mean, certainly t- to Jonathan's point, like. It's always going to be hard and it's always going to be difficult, but you can you can operate at a higher level if you're getting those if you're titrating those three things correctly yeah. for yourself and for what you're doing. And I think that's such a cool point that, that's coming up here is um, how these different things serve us in different contexts. And you know, just walking around in the general public, it's easy for people to label Sugar is bad. Like mm. we have these judgments about certain types of food as it's either good or it's bad. and if you eat bad food, you're bad. and yeah. if you eat good food, then you're good. And sugar is not inherently bad. Sugar in some contexts is essential to giving us the energy that we need for the task at hand. So during a stage race, for example, it becomes increasingly mm. difficult to replenish your glycogen day after day because you're just you're, you're tanking yourself every day, you're trying to replenish it during the race, you're trying to replenish after the race. And at some point you get to a point where you just can't keep up. So to your point, you can sit and eat a whole bag of Haribo, which I was raising my hand earlier, if you're not (laughs) watching this on YouTube, because I have 100% done that many times. But in that context, it makes sense. And it's actually the energy and the fuel that you need. So is sugar bad in that context? No. And having those sort of like moral normative judgments about around food and these certain substances is just an interesting thing that we you know that we throw in there to complicate matters as well salt too you know you said earlier people just kind of want to know like well is salt good or bad should i have more salt or less salt and the the answer is salt is neither good nor bad it serves a particular function Mm -hmm. and depending on the particular context and your own physiology you know titrating that correctly is going to improve your performance. And I think mm-hmm. that this is such a cool, yeah, I mean, I, I love the the point about the, I'll just say the sweat doppelgangers earlier, you know, yeah, yeah. not, you You have to figure out what works for you, because your own physiology is so unique. And not only that, but what is it that you're trying to do? I think um, probably a lot of people listening this to this too are really active, train a lot, maybe race, and you might, you know, we were talking about athletes versus sedentary kind of general population earlier. You might not feel comfortable calling yourself an athlete, but if you're out there training and racing, all of this applies to you.
1: Yeah, you're doing it. I I, I would, I would say as well to expand on that point, because it's got me, it's got me thinking the way you're describing it there, but you know, this uh, trusting your instincts is something we talk about with athletes quite a lot. But, but then the flip side to that is that if you, if you walk anyone almost anyone athlete or non-athlete into kind of a, a cake shop or, or whatever and like present them with all this like they everyone wants to eat a cake you smell it you see it you know you're like so are our instincts to be trusted or not because that's one of the big arguments about you know the fact that we're not evolved but you know to live in the type of food environment that we currently live in because we we are wired up to crave sugar and salt and fat and things that were scarce and now are abundant but i think the the qualifying fact or certainly this and this is based purely on anecdotal my own experience of, of this is when you're training really really hard those instincts become i think more heightened and more reliable because i guess because our body is being used in more of the way it was designed to be used you know so when you get that feeling of low low energy when you're training really really hard it's a very different to the feeling i i've had at some points in the last few weeks due to low energy where. I've just been sat on my backside in this chair <laughs> working for hours and hours and you feel like you need a piece of cake or some sugar or an extra coffee or whatever and actually that's like a mental that's like a mental kind of non-physical fatigue which you know can't be trusted So, or so much, or you know, still it doesn't stop me. Ironically, drinking the coffee, but but I kind of think to myself, "Mm, not sure that I really need this, but I kind of want it. So, so I, I do wonder whether part of the thing with athletes is that, when especially when you're training really, really hard, if you can switch those preconceptions off, and for instance, you know, eat more salt if it feels like the right thing to do. Eat more, eat more sugar. Drink more water. Whatever those things. If you can, if you can learn to tap into those instincts, that will serve you really well. Because where hydration, nutrition gets really interesting for for endurance athletes i think is in the longer stuff because you can often bluff your way through one two hour events with pretty rudimentary nutrition and hydration but you go do leadville or you know do a multi-day event and it'll find you out pretty quick if you're (laughs) if you're not not getting it right so yeah you know yeah anyway Uh, i was freestyling that there's yeah, a question,
0: yeah. there's a question that this isn't, this isn't being recorded live. It isn't even posted yet, but I can already feel everybody yelling this to me right now It's because <laughs> yeah. we get this question all the time on the podcast. So let's address it quickly and then we'll move into the indoor, uh, indoor specific stuff, but, yeah. uh, what do my salt stains
1: mean on my kit? Uh, first off they they are salt that you've lost in your sweat, unless you've been a triathlete and we get this one, you know, where you've had to swim in the sea first and then they're definitely not to be trusted. Yeah. <laughs> sea water. Yeah. They, they, they are, it's salt that you've lost from your sweat, good old table salt, sodium chloride, you know, um, just because you see them visibly doesn't mean that you're losing a ton of salt. You know, they will be present if you, Go out for a long enough period of time so your net sodium loss over a period of time is long if your sweat rate's very high they can be there and they're also way more prominent in low humidity than in high humidity so when i run in phoenix or somewhere like that i bone dry even though i'm sweating a lot but i just get this gradual um dust of salt that if you lick your Mm -hmm. finger and you you can taste it it's pure salt because the fluid evaporates so fast so in hot and dry conditions it's like way way more visible than in cooler uh, in more humid conditions where you stay a little bit slick with sweat so you kind of can't see it in i think though if you take if you take to like for like situations if we had two people we put them both in black cycling kit we got them to exercise at an intensity that elicited a certain sweat rate and in the same environment and looked at them then the one with more salt stains would probably be a good indicator that he or she was losing more salt than the other person so Mm -hmm. they're they're a they're a strong indicator if you if you get them regularly and you see, like I used to find them on the helmet straps of my bike. Oh yeah. Whereas you wash your clothing probably, or at least most people hopefully do. After <laughs> most rides, you often don't, you know, necessarily wash your cycling helmet. Yep. As yeah. frequently, or if if at all, in many cases, I'm sure. But, right. You know, so you get these salt stains that build up, and I always used to find it, you know, amusing that I would have way more salt on there than other people after a week on a training camp. No. Yeah, And sometimes they would actually be... I've, I've got a photo, an old, old photo of them somewhere where it's like, just white. It's salt yeah. from being in Lanzarote for a week. What, um, so, one of the... So, oh, oh,
0: sorry, go ahead. No, carry on. Yeah, one of the related questions to this is, does that mean I'm eating too much salt? Having so, salt stains on my kit, does that mean I'm eating too much
1: salt? I think, like I said earlier, that there is some evidence that, that limited evidence that if you really, really are excessively eating, salt it might show as increased sodium in your sweat but the science on that is not clear and it's not it's definitely for me like whether i eat a lot of salt or not and i've ex- self-experimented a lot my sweat demonstrates a lot of salt in it so i would say it's not cut and dried basically mm-hmm. it's in it, and it could just be that you happen to lose a lot of salt in your sweat
0: got it uh, let's go into indoor uh, versus outdoor i guess context is probably the best way to put it yeah. What's what individual or unique considerations should athletes take into place in their training inside? And, and I going to preface this with the common thing that a lot of us do is right. Amber, we think it's just an indoor ride. So, uh, <laughs> we, so we, we don't fuel it the same. We wear really bad old kit and then we get a saddle sore, uh, you know, and, and we, we do all these different things because yeah. it's just an indoor ride, but. If anything, it's actually the highest amount of output, especially if you're using trainer road, because it's going to be training. that's going to be right. You know, it's scaled to your abilities. So really it's like probably the best time to fuel, to hydrate, to wear the best kit, to do all that stuff, because it is like the highest peak of performance, you know, that you're going to see till race day. But are there any special considerations along those lines or others, Andy, that you would say somebody
1: would need to take concerning hydration
0: in particular when they train inside?
1: the biggest thing about hydration and indoor training is like in a like for-like context, you generally do work harder. You've got way less airflow even if you've got a fan. It's mm-hmm. often not as effective as the kind of airflow you get on the road. so it tends to push your core body temperature up sooner. I know that on the trainer I can be sweating after easily be sweating quite hard after 10 minutes of relatively you know benign warming up compared with if I went and did that on the road. So unit of time per unit of time you probably sweat more. Um, that might be in many people's cases offset though by the fact that you don't ride as long like although in recent times i've heard of a lot of people doing four hour five hour yeah. rides routinely on the on the training because they can't get out i mean i can't mentally do that because i'm i've 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 not got the goal there you know to keep me driven but good on the people that can that can do that and can push out those sessions but i think if you're doing that then you do need to go into that with a plan. And I would, I guess if you want a rule of thumb, I'd probably say, look, if you're on the training for an hour or less, then it's probably wise to have a bottle of water there or something. But unless you're backing that up with another really hard session or coming off the back of another hard session, then not, there's not a lot you can drink or eat or anything that's going to influence your performance in that hour or even, Enhance your recovery dramatically. You know, you just kind of got to turn up, hydrated and fueled, and smash it out. When when you get to two to three hours, okay, that's definitely becoming more more important. But even even up at the well at the lower end of that, even after a couple of hours, probably drinking to thirst. You know, maybe a bit of electrolytes if you are a heavy sweater, but listening to your body i would always after a longer session like that have a strong electrolyte drink mixed up ready to go so i could drink it afterwards to to help my rehydration for recovery but i think during the session i would be largely driven by instinct you know if i was going to do something for four or five hours or you know really kind of long stuff and especially if you're a heavy sweater you're going to need a plan because I think if you follow your instincts, you won't drink much in the first hour or two and that will bite you in the backside later on. So that's where I'd be wanting to, to, to sort of do a bit of pre-planning and that's where understanding your sweat rate and stuff has, has some advantage because even if you start off with an arbitrary, I'm going to replace, I want to replace roughly 50% of what I'm losing, you know, and if you're a a one litre per hour person, over five hours you predict that's going to be about five litres of loss you're going to drink half a litre an hour to kind of mitigate that which which sort of you know for context feels like a reasonable guesstimate for me as a starting point then then you may not feel like drinking half a litre in that first hour but you're kind of going to have to if you want to keep on schedule so yeah so i think that's where whereas outdoors Especially if you do the majority of your training outdoors versus indoors, you've got a lot more, if you're an experienced rider, you've got a lot more rules of thumb you can fall back on. Because normally when I ride this route in this temperature, I take two bottles or I have to stop for a third or normally I can get around this route without a bottle. You've got all those kind of heuristics that you've built up over the years. So I think it requires a bit less planning rather than a bit more. And i would say at the moment if people are doing more indoor training one of the things we've been doing with the athletes that we work closely with is encouraging them to do some analysis so it's like okay we'll write down what you're drinking and eating on these sessions weigh yourself before and after start to write down how you feel about that because we can come out of this period with some knowledge then on on what works and there's been a there's a, a norwegian Um, triathlete I've been working with who's been doing a ton of that and learning loads, you know, for his Ironman performance, which is really cool. He's built a spreadsheet and he's like putting in all of his data, treadmill sessions, bike sessions, wattage, how much he drank, how he felt at the end, how much body weight he'd lost. And I think that's going to be a really valuable resource for him when he goes back outside We can start to translate that into actual strategies.
0: You can control so many more variables when you're riding inside that you just can't control when you're outside. And yeah, so it's a good environment for that on the, on the note of evaporative cooling, and I guess we can kind of go over, it'd be good to go over the why we sweat and, and, but why doesn't adding on to why we sweat, why doesn't evaporative cooling work as well when we're riding inside,
1: I think. The simple reason why it doesn't is that largely, the, the airflow to take the evaporating sweat away from the skin is important, but also unless you're in a huge environment, um, your the humidity in the room where you're training will be massively influenced by by your sweat rate. So we used to have a, a, hu- a climate chamber which wasn't humidity controlled. We could only control the temperature for doing testing in, in the lab. And what we used to find was if you put someone in there for like an hour and a half, the humidity could go up from an ambient of say, let's say, you know, 40% when you start the session to almost 85, 90% throughout that 90 minute period. Now it was a relatively small room with someone working hard, but I think essentially that that evaporative cooling becomes less and less efficient because there's less of a gradient with which in the with the moisture in the air, there's less of a gradient for that evaporation to occur. So you start off in basically in an hour and a half indoors. You kind of start in, you know, Phoenix, and you end up in Miami or something like that because it's just, you know, it, you, the, the conditions change dynamically while you're riding.
0: Yeah, this is something why, and that's why it's so important to have a. a- I, I'm not sure you can have enough fans when you're riding inside because (laughs) I'd agree. Yeah. yeah, I think all of us probably agree with that because the main reason is we have like so much, because a lot of it is about surface area, right. And, and, and a bigger athlete is bigger, but also if they have more surface area, that means they have more cooling ability with greater Mm. surface area. Right. So but it's only effective. That surface area is only helping you if air is moving over that. And when yeah. we're riding in outside air is moving over every single part of us. Even if a yeah. sock is covering it, even if a Jersey yeah. is covering it, there's still a greater amount of airflow than what we experience inside. So when we just have that Ooh. tiny little, you know, we have a small fan that's pointing at us or pointing at one specific spot, which is often our face, but then not pointing at the rest of our <laughs> body. Mm-hmm. It really has a profound impact
1: on your ability yeah. to perform it it does and i think if if people haven't got the ability to have as many fans as they'd like or or for whatever reason you know the space or just the availability of it then it's worth remembering that one sort of side effect one side benefit you get of getting hotter is that heat acclimation blood volume boosting and all those sort of things so you might have to in you might have to change the intensity of your ride and downgrade it a little bit but you still can get an enhanced training effect because actually training in indoors in the heat does give you some of the gives you some benefits that you don't get from riding outside which is why it makes it a bit more of a it's like a more potent form of training
2: for yeah like ride. heat acclimation you need to adjust the intensity and your own expectations
1: yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. that's the problem
0: yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> honestly yeah. a, a, a z2 recovery ride so i i i I guess I, once again, more is always better in the mind of, of, of all of us. And it's not correct, but I thought heat training. Awesome. I'm going to go straight into it here at our office. We have a a shower that's relatively small. It's a, it's a tiled shower, uh, and it does not have much circulation. It has a fan, but of course I turned the fan off and I even turned the water on hot and I left the water on, but then there was a spot for me without the water to be able to train. And I put in a heater in there, of course, because once again, more is better. And I remember doing a Z two ride low Z two, and it was one of the hardest workouts I've ever done. And it was 45 minutes long, but in those 45 minutes, the amount of sweat, my body was pouring out was substantial and it was, it's very difficult. So this also ties into, and, and this is a bit, you know, separate from this podcast, but if you do find yourself in this situation and you're training inside and you're wondering why it's so much harder. Many times it's because you don't have sufficient cooling and that does have a profound effect on what you're doing. So it's, it's important to keep that grain of salt handy and also to become a purveyor of fans and start to build them up, <laughs> uh, the, for us here in the United States. And I know that you can get them overseas in spots as well, but they're, they're con they're commonly referred to as blower fans. Yeah. But essentially, what they'll have is instead of like you know rotating blades, they'll actually have like a spindle-mounted uh, array, and that spins very quickly, and it can push out a lot more airflow over your body. So they're the Lasco Performance Series is usually what we yeah. use here. Uh, it's entirely unsponsored. It's just, uh, I'm sure we're going to get that question. So as far as which family recommend. So those are the ones that I have and two of them, three of them would be great too. If you can do it once again, do you,
1: do you put one behind you as well and stuff like that? So you can get it on your back.
0: I, I don't, but I should, uh, because that's one spot where you build up a lot of sweat is, mm. is off of your back. It, um, so it's, it's definitely, I think a a good thing to do. The one thing that I've learned is that I don't just put one on my face. I try to put one so that it covers the largest surface area. And if you do only have one fan and it's not a very powerful fan, just try to position it in a way that it's going to move the most amount of air over the most surface area. That's probably best. There is a psychological effect for me, at least personally with air going over my face. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, but uh, physically speaking, I bet it's probably the most effective when we have it going over our body. So, um, yeah. w- one question I had on this is somewhat related. This isn't indoors, but, uh, I'm a cross country mountain biker and I commonly, when I watch world cup races and I commonly see Nino Scherter in particular, he has two bottles in the feed zone. It seems that he grabs one with mix drinks, the mix, and then grabs the one with water. And he almost always uses that uses that as a body pour bottle. Yeah. And he particularly puts the water on his legs, groin, and lower back. It seems. Yeah. Is there anything to, like, dousing yourself with water, but in in particular areas, and are certain areas better than others?
1: Yeah, uh, I think dousing yourself with water is underutilized by athletes. If you if you have the opportunity to, because basically, I don't that I don't know of any studies that have been done actually, but you can only imagine that half a litre of water dumped on the soot the skin must help you to conserve a reasonable amount of sweat because while that is being evaporated off it it's helping you to cool and you're not having to expel sweat to do that so i think that's a really good thing as to why he's squirting it on those areas of the body i would say scientifically it's maybe anywhere where there's large anywhere where if you imagine if you put an ice pack anywhere where it would melt quickly is an area where you're going to lose be losing a lot of heat so if you put one in the groin for instance you've got large veins and arteries there near the surface of the skin so that it might be that it's you know he's he's been taught or has thought about where are the areas where i can get maximum cooling effect. because when you if someone's going down with heat stroke you often put ice packs in their groin under their arms and stuff where you've got around their neck where you've got access to big vasculature because that's what cools the blood and helps you cool down the other thing though might just be practical because if you're mountain biking you don't want to dump it over your head because you don't want your <laughs> glasses all you know covered in it and you, you need to be able to see where you're going and and you don't want it all in your hands and gloves and stuff to make to get it in your on your bars and make them slippy and things so i think it may be some of it's a little bit practical as well because um, mm-hmm. i know that when whenever you see triathletes doing it running the first thing they'll do is like straight over the head and that but that's Probably less impactful to performance than, you know, like attacking a technical section with sweat diluted into your eyes.
0: And- <laughs> yeah, yeah, and covering dust-covered yeah. lenses. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and also don't get your bottles mixed. Uh, don't don't put the mixed yeah. bottle on your body. So <laughs> yeah. uh, let's get into cramping a little bit. Uh, I mean, I guess probably the best way to say it, rather than why do we cramp, is probably what we know and what we don't know. I'm not mm. sure if that's the best way to approach it, but uh, how you yeah. start well, out with it.
1: I think cramping, when you define it, is a, is like a really st- strong and involuntary muscle contraction that either is instantaneous or, or prolonged, and is where you you don't consciously you your body recruits a ton of muscle fibers and contracts them really vigorously all at once, and it often happens really quickly. Times when it occurs are probably if we talk about cramps in sports as opposed to cramps that people because people get cramps at night in bed and they get cramps Mm -hmm. in weird weird for weird reasons but if we talk about them in sports they often happen when people are getting tired or when they're overworking muscles or maybe when they're putting muscles through ranges of motion that they're not used to so the one i've talked about before for myself is when i used to do a lot of training on a normal road bike setup and then the first few sessions when you go back into a low profile position on a time trial bike because it sounds stupid and i look back at it and it was stupid but as a triathlete 20 years ago you would do a lot of your training you know loads of your training would be on a road bike because that's how road cyclists trained and then you'd kind of only get on your low low profile bike for time trialing stuff quite close to the season because you, you know, whereas now you see a lot of the top guys, you know, ride very specifically in a low position because I would find that would cause cramps in my hip flexors when you go Mm -hmm. lower. And that, that was definitely like a a, a muscular or a neural thing where you ask your body to do something it's not conditioned for. And so we don't really understand why, but it's something to do with the, the neural feedback and it causes the muscles to cramp. Now, the other, the other kind of cramps that, or the other flavor of cramps, whatever you want to call it, are the ones that seem to be cons- conspicuously happening when people have um, large amounts of dehydration, large amounts of sodium depletion or com- or overhydration. So overhydration with water, because sometimes when people get hyponatremia, which is a condition where you dilute blood sodium levels down, one of the signs that, clinicians look out for is muscle cramping because there's some kind of imbalance in electrolytes and things and one of the big reasons why cramping is a controversial topic is is there's no there's definitely no one set way that it comes on mm-hmm. we know that the, the probably the most reliable thing we know about cramping actually is how to relieve it once it's happening and that's to stretch the affected muscle so if you get a calf cramp that's why you see soccer players classically their teammate grabs their toe and pulls it up towards their knee because that puts the, the calf muscle under under strain, and almost instantly, often with most cramps, it will release them. And so that's that plays into the neural feedback loop and and causes that um, muscle contraction to be released and is pretty reliably effective. But obviously, that's only good once the cramps happened. And once the cramps happened, was an endurance athlete or <laughs> as any kind of athlete really? It's it's probably had a devastating effect on your performance because you've had to stop or or slow down.
0: And they always come back too. Like yeah, like, like you stretch it and you're like yeah, okay, it's good. Then on the way back down out of that stretch, it just fires back. You Eyes know, it's back, <laughs> yeah.
1: And then you can get in these horrible situations. I've had it where ham hamstr- you know hamstring cramps like crazy or quad cramps. So you stretch in your quad muscle and then bang the hamstring. Yeah. Yeah. Stretch the other way and it's just like oh. It's so yes. painful, and, and the thing about cramps is, like, you can really hurt your muscles with a cramp. You mm-hmm. know, if you've had, a, if anyone's had a really bad cramp, you can actually almost tear the muscle. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've certainly had that in calf muscles when I've got really, really bad cramps. And then the next day, it's like, geez, what have I done? And then you think back, it's like, yeah, it's that. It's, it's actual such horrific muscle damage because you've you've just over contracted because your muscles are over if you know what I mean that or they're normally consciously you can't use your muscles to their full ability because they could potentially rip themselves off the joints or break your bones or whatever yeah. but then this kind of a cramp seems to override that it's like a maximal close to a maximal contraction um,
2: I had that happen to me one year at tour of the Gila which is high elevation very dry desert very hot um And this is one of those situations where I was working for a teammate and there was a a break off the front and we needed to shut down the gap. The break had about a three minute gap. And the time my director and I had a few disagreements. So he decided to like make an example of me that day and said like, you need to shut this gap down by yourself. No one can help you go. So, you know, I had got a chip on my shoulder and was like, all right, fine, I'm gonna do it. (laughs) (laughs) Sat on the front for, gosh, it must've been like over 30 K And managed to bring the gap down right before the final climb. And of course, that was my job that day. So I could phone it in. It was a stage race, though. So I still had to make time cut. I just didn't care about my own results. So I pulled off the front. Everything was fine. But I went straight back through the group, straight out the back of the caravan. (laughs) So there was no one around me. And I was so dehydrated. And I didn't, you know, there were no more cars. And but I just I had to get to the finish line. And it that last section, it's the inner loop stage. There's just these huge, exposed rollers. There's no shade. It's it's brutal. And my ham both hamstrings started cramping. And I was going up over a roller, so I couldn't stop or I was gonna fall off. So I was trying to like stretch my hamstrings, and as I was stretching both hamstrings, both quads started cramping yeah. and it got to this point where my legs were alternately locking up to the, and I I was literally just like throwing my body awkwardly over the frame to get <laughs> each pedal over the yeah. top with my legs basically locked. And I had to do that for gosh, it was like five miles or so oh, to the finish. And yeah, yeah. my teammates had to help me unclip from the bike. Cause I just, and I was I mean, I made time cut. I was able to complete the rest of the stage race, but I was virtually useless because my, my, my muscles were so shredded from Mm. those horrific cramps that day. Yeah. Yeah. Never forget that. It was very traumatic. (laughs) And this kind of like,
0: so uh, many reasons, or there are many reasons cramps happen, or could happen. And like we were talking about in the beginning of this podcast about levers, there are plenty of different levers that go into this and you can influence those levers. And it probably isn't a bad idea to address as many of those as possible with some sort of measured approach instead of a a crazy approach to it. But discussing the role of sodium in particular and how it affects cramps, I'd, I'd be curious in, in in your opinion on that or, or what you know about that, but then also how long it takes for sodium ingestion to then help. Cause we've talked about stretching. There's mm-hmm. also plenty of things about neural distractions of some sort or yep. another, or you take hot sauce, pickle juice, something with a strong flavor as that distracts yep. you. Uh, I've, I've, I've actually been, in a situation where I was cramping and then there was a crash not I wasn't in the crash but there was a crash right around me and for the next like like four minutes I didn't realize it but my cramps were gone because I was yeah. just it was like whoa the crash and it you know yeah. it, it shocked me out of it so there are plenty of ways to manage it but what's the role of sodium and cramping and is that also uh once you've cramped take sodium to fix it does that work
1: so yeah there's the science on that is not strong is the first thing to say but that doesn't mean there's not a a decent amount of evidence as it were albeit case studies and practical experience that points towards the fact that sometimes and in actually in quite a lot of cases taking in sodium in reasonable quantities can influence cramping so one of the things is you've talked about the the you know how quite quickly does it act? Well, some people have found that if you put salt directly in the mouth when you're when you start to feel cramps, that almost immediately or very very quickly you can get a reaction, a reduced cramping, which doesn't make sense on a physiological level if it was a deficiency of sodium, because it's not got in your system fast enough, and it certainly hasn't got in large enough quantities to be distributed and make a, a fundamental difference at the muscular level because you've got to ingest it, absorb it, transport it. But what it does make it sense of is like with carbohydrate mouth rinsing, which has got some pretty solid science behind it. Like you take a carb drink in your mouth, swill it around and spit it out. When you're doing high intensity activity, your wattage output can go up. And that's, they think because your brain sort of gets the signal, you know, carbs are coming or in this case, salt is coming. So it takes the brakes off whatever was causing the problem. Now, that's very speculative, but it seems to have some merit in, in the in the real world. So I think that that can help. What I tended to find on a purely practical level for myself was, at, at the, if I hadn't got my sodium intake right at the onset. On the, if I was lucky, because in when you're doing long, steady endurance, self-paced stuff, it's different. If you're road racing or mountain biking, when your power spikes and comes off, but if I'm getting cramps in an Ironman on the run, I'm usually trying to control my pace to within a few seconds per mile, so it's steady. It's all steady mm-hmm. state, and and cramps in those situations often creep up on you, so you can feel them coming. <sighs> yeah, kind of like you start getting like a little twinge in your quads when you're running mm-hmm. downhill, and that's when I used to get those signs the first nips of cramp then I would ingest plenty of salt and quite often then I'd find 10-15 minutes later I've realised the problem's gone away and then I take stay on top of the salt intake and it helps to, helps to level it out. So I think it's different though if your cramps come on when you've done something mega explosive and maybe the component of excessive force and really high muscular contraction rates in a state of fatigue maybe playing into it more, maybe sodium is going to be less impactful for that.
2: Yeah. So- and let's be honest when I was cramping, I was, I was putting out a lot of torque, you guys, like <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. I <yeah. Sorry.
2: laughs> just want to yeah. be clear about that. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, as, as another silly example, the last time I got real, real bad cramps was not that long ago. And it was in, uh, where was I? I was in spring, I was at baseball spring training, which is the last time I was in the US, a few at the end of February. And I'd traveled a lot, lots of long haul flight, long haul flight and another flight. I'd got in a swimming pool just to have an easy stretch out swim. And I thought I was starting to get, I was a bit dehydrated from the flying and adjusting to a hot, warm environment. Um, also, um, probably at an odd time of day so it was probably like 3am in my body clock or something like that because i've not adjusted to the time zone so a lot of factors stacked against it went for an easy swim could feel that i was getting a few nips of cramp and thought i'm gonna have to get out soon because this is not gonna end well but where (laughs) i got cramp was like I tried to sort of like leap out the pool there wasn't steps um and so so i'm like trying to leap out the pool and like my leg just (laughs) locked up and i had to drop back in the water and sort of style it out rather than yeah 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 try and then hutch out hutch out of the pool sideways you know because and and for me there's a very strong rationale there for the fact that a huge part of that for me was like I'm just dehydrated like there's not Mm -hmm. like you could there's so much you can do to mitigate it when you've flown halfway across the world been in a hot environment drunk a bit too much coffee because you're trying to stay awake and you've just done a load of bad things like that for me it was the it was this vicious muscle contraction of like really pushing and jumping out the pool that set the cramp off but what caused that to happen is or or the trigger for that was being dehydrated, Mm -hmm. or being seriously, you know, low on fluids and salts. And so, you know, there's, everyone's got their own, like everyone, you talk to athletes, everyone's got their own cramping stories. And some of them, I always say to athletes, if you've got the kind of classic dehydration cramps are the ones that happen relatively frequently, in hotter or more humid conditions they happen relatively later on in events and they happen when you put in big efforts or even they happen after those events like in the evening or at night and that sort of thing you've got a pretty strong case for trying sodium and fluid as a as a protocol to get on top of them if you're a, a a 200 meter track sprinter who's getting cramps out of the blocks and that kind of thing it's it's probably got way more to do with mechanics and um uh, the neural system or other factors that yet to be discovered, as opposed to it being dehydration. Because unless you're doing something really, really wrong in your day-to-day diet, then you're not dehydrated or anywhere near it at that point in time. If you're right. an athlete- so, just to- Oh, yeah. Sorry. Oh, go ahead, Amber.
2: I was just gonna say, just to step back when we're talking about the the science in this area not being strong, um, it's it's just that there's no clear conclusion about. You know, no def- def- definitive conclusion about what exactly it is that causes cramping. Like we yes. don't have a mechanistic, conclusive. This is what it is.
1: We don't have that, and also where people have tried to measure things in the lab, so they've measured, say, blood sodium levels in people that are getting cramps, or or tried to. Um, it's really hard, actually, ethically and also from a, a practical point of view, to recreate cramps in people. <laughs> you can't kind mean. of. Yeah. <laughs> I did not want to be a part of that study. No, because no, maybe maybe when yeah, – because a lot of cramps happen when we're racing, although we occasionally get them when we're training. A lot of people mm-hmm. mainly experience them for the first time when they're putting in a really hard effort in a race. And I'm sure there's a huge psychological component to that because oh, that's when yeah. you're digging deeper and pushing harder and asking your muscles mm-hmm. to do harder and harder things. You know, that's, that's always tricky. And um,
2: traumatic because by that point you've invested so much yeah, just yeah. to be there and then to feel like – this thing is happening and you can't even control it. It's you, can't, just, it's, you can't
1: do anything about it. You can't yeah.
2: do anything about it. It's, it's, it's it. emotionally traumatic.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it's and so trying to recreate that scenario in a lab to get Oof. people to, re- because then what you've got to do ideally is you want to be able to reliably recreate it, change some variables and then remeasure it. So there was an interesting study a couple of years ago, which took this and did a clever thing. And they, 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 found a way to give people reliable cramps now what they did was they put electrodes on your feet or the calf muscles on your feet and they found a way to contract the the muscles i think it was the plantar fascia i'd have to go back (sighs) and read the paper but they basically got people to cramp in their either their calf or their foot and they could do it reasonably reliably with a group of people and these were people who'd self-identified as frequent exercise induced muscle cramp victims basically now, what they then did was they gave them different drinks and they randomized and blinded the study, I think. So they gave them sweetened drinks that either did or didn't have significant amounts of sodium in or not. And then they they put these electrodes on and they ramped up the current and measured the threshold frequency at which cramping started. And what they found was that across the group, it wasn't the case for every single individual, but across the group, the average threshold for muscle cramping was increased when people had taken the high sodium drinks and decreased when they'd taken the placebo so they took that to be an indication that because this was you know there was sort of like an indication that the sodium ingestion was and they ingested it along i I believe they took it you know well in advance of the test so that it was actually in the body and measurable, or would have been measurably present in the in the muscles or in the blood so that that was a, a kind of a piece of evidence that pointed in the direction of there being something there and that's that to me was a, a pretty interesting study but yeah. but it definitely doesn't go as far as being like conclusive proof because a lot of the pe- things that people hold up as proof are case studies
3: right. and
1: case studies are always interesting but you have to be careful about touting them as like cast iron proof because pretty much for everything you can pull a case study or a series of case studies up for someone will pull a a series of case studies that disprove that yeah right and there's just so many
2: so many confounding factors like we talked about it's just Mm
1: -hmm. when
2: you're when you're actually applying it in the real world it's so difficult to control for other factors when
1: you when you when when you get cramps quite often you're also glycogen depleted you're also fatigued Mm -hmm. you're also also all of these other things and so you can't reliably control for those other factors and then just do this there isn't there is a guy in australia um, who's doing a really interesting study on sodium replenishment and exercise in five hour trials in the heat chamber which has never really been done before because Hmm. trying to recruit people to run for five hours in a heat chamber and on multiple occasions with different interventions, is really really tough. So hats so off to a guy called um, Dr. Alan McCubbin, who's really really actively mm-hmm. researching sodium ingestion and performance. And he's not looking at it from a cramping point of view, but I've been meaning to ask him actually whether cramping is a one of the endpoints that they would look at because I'd be mm-hmm. really interested in, in that because you would imagine that if people are cramp prone, they're more likely to to get cramps in that scenario than in many other lab studies
2: yeah, yeah definitely if you i'm are, just cringing imagining oh, that know, protocol oh that, right? gosh
0: <laughs> if you are a frequent uh, frequent cramper is there anything that you should change about your sodium intake strategy in particular or would you recommend that everybody just take in based off of their sweat rate and their sweat composition
1: and and address it from there i think one of the first things to do is look at your take a good look at your current level of intake because that's a kind of a baseline for you because often we have people who say well I've, I've been getting cramps but I've tried electrolytes it's not really worked and it's okay well let's break down the dosage of what that is and for me for a cramper the preloading stuff that we talked about earlier like a high dose sodium before you exercise is a good is a good one to mitigate things especially if your cramps are happening in shorter events because that can help rule that out but then going on from there it's like okay well if someone's tried electrolytes if they try a standard sports drink they might be taking two or three hundred milligrams of sodium an hour based on normal kind of drinking volumes we would be quite aggressive and put that up to say eight hundred a thousand or maybe more milligrams an hour so that we really make a step change to see if it's impactful um, mm-hmm. so it, it is quite it is quite individual but kind of based on a combination of yeah if we can test them it's their physiology but also it's like okay what are you doing now because let's move the needle substantially if someone's so for example if you if someone's telling me they're cramping and they're they're definitely already taking 1500 milligrams an hour we've not got a lot of room to go north from there Mm -hmm. so maybe we've got to look at other factors so maybe it might be the volume of fluid that they're taking on with it or maybe it, it might be something else if they're on the low end, we've got room to bump them up. I'd actually be relatively aggressive in increasing it so that we can hopefully see a fairly instant improvement in a short space of time and then tweak it from that point.
0: Let's get into women's specific hydration issues. And I guess the easiest way to phrase this is, should women hydrate differently than men?
1: That's It's a really good question that we've been asked a lot and one that I've honestly shied away from getting too involved in until more recently because we've had a a female sports scientist, um, Abby Coleman, join our team and it's one of the first things that Abby and I discussed because I always said, I didn't want to be that guy who's trying to tell <laughs> women about their hydration needs because I've read something about it or whatever and obviously Stacy Sims is someone who's been a, a really good female athlete a researcher and a doctor in this area written books and papers about it and she's been the the kind of authority on this to and and made some really good points around the fact that historically women have been treated as kind of small men and mm-hmm they have different needs and i think that's true in a lot of areas i think in the in the area of hydration when abby researched the the sort of background of it for us she found that indeed through the menstrual cycle there are phases where sodium and fluid are retained there's phases where sodium and fluid are excreted at a higher level so um, statistically speaking there are there are some fluctuations that that could in theory be impactful in what your requirements would be where that is not so clear and i think that's inarguable basically that's solid science i think where you then have to make a leap and i don't know whether how comfortable i am making that leap is that those kind of statistically significant differences that you can measure in sodium and fluid retention and loss actually translate into big enough clinically significant differences that that mean that women should hydrate differently, either at different times during the month or different times or or differently to men. And Mm -hmm. so the view we've always taken historically was that if you take a group of humans, be they male or female, the principal thing that drives hydration needs and sodium and fluid needs in a group of athletes is their sweat rates and their sodium loss, their, their levels. And if you take those two groups, kind of women tend to be on one side with, as a, as a group, slightly lower overall sweat rates and, and similar le- levels of sodium loss in the sweat, similar concentrations, but slightly lower net losses because of net sodium losses. Guys tend to be on the higher side because guys sweat more, basically, and so potentially lose more salt and fluid. But but what happens with those two groups is they very, very much overlap. So the height, the, the ladies that sweat, the most and lose the most salt, lose considerably more than the guys who sweat the least and lose Mm. the least salt. So we've not through any sort of political or moral stance, just through a simple practical one, have not treated women and men differently. We've tried to treat individuals differently based on their individual level of sweat loss. And I think where Abby got to with the conclusion of what she was researching there was that whilst there is a, a strong and statistically significant difference in the amount of, of sodium and fluid that women can lose due to menstrual cycle should they be treated differently to men because of that you know that wasn't so clear that was it wasn't such, so compelling it was more about looking at them as an individual you know mm. as a as a, a person who sweats and exercises and basically tailoring it around those factors that's where yeah. we kind of ended up on it
0: Amber, is this something that, you know, It's how we were talking about before, how as a professional continues for years and years to refine, is this something that you, did you, did you notice yourself cycling or adjusting your sodium intake or anything else like that based on a menstrual cycle? Or was it just simply just based off of the demands of what you were doing and the, and the environmental conditions, that sort of stuff?
2: Yeah, I I got a chance to read this article, and it did actually resonate with my experience, which was that I never did find, I mean, I never observed, at least in myself and my own experience, um, any strong indicators that my hydration status would fluctuate month to month. I definitely had some strong indicators as far as uh, my rate of perceived exertion for a given workout. So. Especially for higher intensity workouts in the days before I would start my period, which would be like the final days of my cycle. Um, And that is a time when a lot of women do feel a lot of, feel very symptomatic. I'll say Um, I would struggle with higher intensity workouts. Not that I couldn't do them, I could perform. And I, trust me, I race through, geez, (laughs) I race through a lot in my career. Um, And I never, you know, I might feel a little bit better or worse at certain times of the month, but never to the point of like, really undermining a race or making me incapable of doing a workout. Um, in my training, I would adjust my training around that just because if I was struggling with a workout that I normally didn't struggle with, it would affect me mentally. It would it would kind of undermine my confidence in a way that wasn't constructive. So it wasn't really like um, I wasn't capable of the performance. It was just, for me, mentally and emotionally, it helped me to to adjust my training around that. But that didn't have really anything to do with hydration status as far as I could tell. And in reading that article, um, Abby did a great job of kind of breaking down, well, if you look at estrogen, this makes sense. If you look at progesterone, this makes sense. These are the receptors that these hormones are competing with. But when you kind of step outside of just the estrogen and the progesterone, she pointed out that there's a lot of other feedback mechanisms that are going on there um, that really to your point, Andy, bring it back to the individual and how the individual's body is regulating to get back to a particular homeostatic baseline. Yep. And that, that sounds, I mean, like I said, that really resonates with my own experience.
1: Mm-hmm. Did, I, w- I was curious to ask you as well, Amber, because we we spoke to some of the elite athletes that we work with um, about their experiences with it. And because I was, I was really looking for someone to stand up and say, you know, well, actually for me, this is made a, this was impactful and to, to kind of give us a bit of a counterpoint because I'm well aware that we've seen huge inter individual variation in lots of other different characteristics. So is, is, is not just from your own experience but talking to other athletes have there been has there been anyone who's kind of that you're aware of that has adjusted based on their their menstrual cycle for hydration or is that not something that's that's been talked about?
2: Um, I think that this whole topic is so is really new, relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I didn't even really, I didn't, I mean, I had a over 12 year career, it was only in the last four or five years of my career that I actually started thinking about, oh, maybe my cycle is affecting my training. And it was like, as soon as I started tracking and correlating, it was like, oh, yeah, there's these couple days every month where it's pretty clear something is happening. Um, But I as far as hydration goes, that's one that no i am not aware of what for me and what I've seen with other athletes is is heat is the big one like that's where I yeah. see a lot of athletes preloading with um, higher sodium i I definitely do that and and I honestly, as far as I can tell, and this is all purely anecdotal from my personal experience and then also my experience in interacting with other female athletes is, you know, heat has a much, much bigger effect, uh, than menstrual cycle. And it may be the case, you know, at certain times of through the menstrual cycle, core temperature does elevate, uh, yeah. incrementally. And that may, that probably has effect an effect on thermoregulation in heat and probably exacerbates that in some cases. Um, but I think, From the athlete's perception, it's you're looking more to the heat as being a factor that's going to strongly, strongly impact your performance and strongly impact your strategy for hydrating and maintaining nutrition and fueling than you would really at at menstrual cycle.
0: Hmm. This is, uh, and to go back to just one more final point on this, Andy, is you mentioned that men sweat more generally, and it, I assume that that's just tied down to the fact that they usually have larger mass, therefore larger work rates. Uh, yeah, and, and, and yeah a, lot of, a lot of it is. Yeah. I'm oh, yeah. sorry.
1: I, I sorry. There's a bit of a lag and I t- talked over you, but um, no problem. Yeah, yeah, basically, I think it's a lot to do with muscle mass, m- metabolic rate, power output, that sort of thing, which is why you get that crossover, because obviously a lot of ladies who are punching at a high level of kicking the ass of a lot of, a lot of the guys. So you Mm -hmm. get this really big overlap, but if you take the extremes, you would probably find that the lowest sweat rates would be predominantly women. And the very highest ones would predominantly be men.
0: Interesting reason. So it really comes down to, to recap and basically to recap on this whole entire conversation, uh, it really comes down to your sweat rate and then your sodium loss or, or, sweat composition basically. And and that's, those are the, if you can dial in those factors, you can do that. And this is, so I'm going to throw in a couple plugs, uh, because thanks Andy for taking the time to, to talk with no us worries. on this. And, uh, number one, it's, if you can, you can get in touch with precision hydration, we'll go into this in a couple of ways, but to do a test where you can actually figure out your composition, um, Possibly a bit more scientifically than just like that's a lot of like the, that's like a McDonald's level amount of salt on my on my yeah. health <laughs> or less. Um, so you can you can do that and it's not a demanding test at all. We did it while I did it while sitting on the couch and having a casual conversation, which was really nice. Um, so you can do that, but specifically uh you as a company precision hydration on the 25th of may so uh this podcast will come up before then uh you'll actually be doing like one-on-one consultations or more or less like you'll be zooming more or less i guess to say with people and you can they can reserve those there's only going to be 26 20 minute slots uh, on that day is that right
1: no yeah there will be so so we're going to start on the 25th of may Uh we're going to run it for two weeks um not the weekends, just the the weekdays. And there'll be, I think there'll be six around about six slots a day and we can, we can do those first come first serve people just go online and book them to talk to myself or other members of the team who will be jumping in and taking some of those sessions.
0: And I assume they can find that on the Precision Hydration website. That's the best way to
1: do it. and, And we'll give you guys a link to, to push out as well for that.
0: Cool. And there's an email you can reach out to as well. It's just hello at precisionhydration.com. Yeah. I've sent a handful of emails directly to the company and, and, um, I don't think they know who I am or anything and they respond very quickly. It's awesome. So really responsive group of folks, which is great. Uh, the, the other thing too, is if you are listening to this, we got this question last time people were asking like, Hey, like, um, I want to try some of the stuff and, and we don't, uh, is there a code? And there is, it's just trainer road 15. Do you know, if it's case sensitive on that?
1: For I don't think it is. I'd go lower case in case it is, but it's trainer road 15. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Cool. So, it's a commonly used thing by a bunch of us here at the office. And, and uh, man, when we were in Kona this past year I was using it like crazy. Nate sweat an absolutely <laughs> insane amount. I don't know <laughs> why, but it was incredible to see a human sweat that much. So, uh, it's definitely something to to keep on top of. And once again, if you're take a couple takeaways, yes, sweat rate and your sodium loss, but then I loved how you phrased it, Andy, with having your glycogen intake. And figuring that what you need to do per hour, and then making sure that you have the sodium figured out, making sure you're drinking enough. And if you have those three things down, then you pace well, especially with long distance events, you'll be in a great spot. So thanks so much, Andy, for, for joining us and awesome. Thank you super cool. If you have more questions about this one, once again, head over to the trainer road forum and you can just search for precision hydration and you'll find this and plenty of other discussions that other people have had on precision hydration, which is pretty cool. And you can jump in there and and join in on the discussion. And of course, reach out to precision hydration. If you want to snag one of those slots for a one-on-one consultation, which is really cool. So thanks Andy. And we will talk to you all soon.
2: Bye-bye. Bye everyone.